Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, it's the normal kind of preamble before an episode of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles, which is just to say thank you very much to everyone who supports us via Patreon. Uh, It makes a huge difference to us because uh, certainly for for Josie and me and Trent, uh, our main livelihood has now been kind of off for pretty much a year. So Patreon really keeps us going and it means that we can keep making loads of new stuff. And just to mention that uh, we have a new show that came out this week uh, with Brian Green, the brilliant uh, mathematician and physicist, talking about meaning and purpose of existence and uh, that first episode of Uncanny Hour uh, all about John Carpenter's The Thing with Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and Rhys Shearsmith and Sarah Morgan is out as well for Patreon supporters so if you can support us via Patreon brilliant if not you can still listen to this that's alright isn't it it was a little bit of a fluff there but it doesn't matter it's a conversation no it's fine but you forgot to say the URL again patreon.com slash bookshambles and also if you can't support us via Patreon, as Robin said, that is fine, but you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review Book Shambles five stars. That is free. That helps us out as well. That's all that. Robin, do the uh, intro to the intro bit. Here's me, Josie, and Selena Godden. This is Book Shambles, Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Um, and today we're joined by uh, poet, author, and Josie. I'd say broadcaster. Wouldn't oh, I you? thought you meant Anne Josie, and I was like, "Yeah, that's true." I'm here oh no, too. you're here already. You're, you're in the titles. <laughs> you're, you're in the Paul Newman position of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid of the titles today. Uh, but we're, we're joined by uh, Selena Godden, who's uh, oh, your book is, as I was saying before we started this, is such a great book. It was so exciting to hear the kind of the build up to it, and then it came out in it was pretty late January, wasn't it? That it that it came out was it middle? Yeah, it's yeah. just been out three weeks now, and it's yeah. Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. And I just want to start off by saying I th- I think in the period of you know the lockdown and all of the uncertainty over the last year, there are times when you realise how important art is. Sometimes quite frequently. Mm. And your book, which is so beautifully written, such uh, an, an, an incredible meditation on on death and on life, was one of those books that when I started reading it, I was like thank heavens this has come out of someone's mind what a this this is at this time a time of great uncertainty for pretty you know pretty much everyone in the uk but on different levels of course the book touches on so many things there are so many connections in it so i just wanted to start by saying that because it's just That's it's so magnificent kind piece of, of you well, i'm gonna cry thank you <laughs> thank it's, you it's, lovely. I, I love it and um and what I wanted to start off by saying, because, again, it's a novel, but I kind of almost don't find it a novel. It's it, it, it's beautifully written and it's in a fictional world, but it's it's also filled with reality. And as I said at the beginning, it's filled with meditation on death. It seems that it, it is a book of philosophy. It is also a book of psychology. It, it is a book, I felt, in its, in its own way as well, of it, it's almost like a self-help book as well, because I could see that anyone going through difficult times of loss something like this book has so much to hold on to 
I mean, when you were writing it, how much of the did you have any of those things in in mind at all? Wow, that's an amazing thing to say. No one said any of that to me before. Okay, let me take a moment to process what you said. Um, I I think it might feel like all of those things because I started writing this book a long time ago when I was in a time of of going through quite a lot of trauma and grieving. So it comes from a place of trying to heal myself, I suppose, um, and therefore trying to maybe humanise death by making death a woman, conversations with death. There seemed to be a run of funerals at, at one point, and, and I was just in a bit of a, tum a tumble dry, like tumbled around with all these emotions. Um, and so I think that's where the work started. It came from a place of anxiety, grieving and loss. And uh, it, it's, it's not lost on me that it's now published in a time of even more anxiety, grieving and loss. Um, I'm, I'm in the same place I was, you know, when, when I started the work, if you, it's come full circle. Hmm. And can I ask, that, so you started the book, how long ago? And then you left it. So can you give yeah. us a sense of, 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 of how that worked? I think I, there's some parts of it that I definitely was writing. Um, I've got this thing about when you, when you finish something, like get on with something else right away, get back on the bicycle, you know? I think a lot of us do that. So I think some of it was written back in 2011, 2012, when I was just finishing up with Springfield Road. Um, but the real work started in 2015, 2016, and that that's and then I worked on it solidly for those, for for those for that era, um, specifically December 2015, Christmas time, walking through Whitechapel and coming across this feeling and this voice that said, "I know a lot of dead people now. I know a lot of dead people now," and I was very very compelled to write this in my phone and I started recording this whole monologue that that which then became a chapter in the book which is the first time that Wolf um, a young troubled writer meets Mrs Death and uh, word for word that that that's kind of how it happened and just walking down past the mosque and down towards Bo mm -hmm. and just recording practically this whole thing just came in a in a flood in a in a, and I was just trying to type it and and this voice it didn't sound like me it didn't sound like my usual narrator or internal voice so i didn't know what this was and then from there the character mrs death i was like maybe maybe it's death I mean, who knows the most dead people mrs death knows the most dead people and then this idea that we all know a lot of dead people and we never erase them from our phone we never delete them from our facebook um yeah so that that's kind of, that was my a big jumping off point for me um it's almost like then a Oh, sorry. It's almost like a divine uh, inspiration, like to suddenly feel this other voice within you. It was one of those. Yeah, it was one of those really haunting moments. Um, there's a lot of anniversaries around for me in December. My father um, died in December and my grandmother, too. So maybe it was them whispering in my ear. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And do you often find that writing as walking or writing with speech is something that you do as part of your process only for this book this became part of my this book and i hope you can sort of feel that movement and the walking as i'm writing it because there's so much of it was 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 i looked it up and it's a real thing it's called composing on the lips i didn't know 
what I was doing, but they call it you know, when work is composed on the lips, this idea that you're not hunched over a typewriter, you're walking and recording, and then you go home and type it up later. So a lot of this book was written walking around East London or walking around Ireland in Cushendor, County Antrim, um, and just, yeah, walking and talking and trying to possess or be Mrs. Death, lowering my voice and talking in this more strong, mature, older, powerful woman voice. Mrs. Death, the most powerful woman in the universe, probably the most one that we're most terrified of. Um, and sort of trying to in inhabit her character. Um, I, I mean, if, if anyone had seen me walking around in my local park going, I am death and I can vanish. <laughs> as long as you've got the headphones in, it's fine. <laughs> Just having a very serious yeah. conversation. <laughs> yes. Death's yeah. had highlights. Yeah, Death's got highlights. That's really cheering everything up a little bit, hasn't it? I think that's nice. That that was that sense of movement because I think that does very much come across because again someone in fact I think the last gig we did together it was quite a while ago now was probably in the old Labour Club with uh, Alan Moore amongst others in Northampton. Mm. Um, oh, I love that. That's a good memory. A, Sorry, that was, that was a good room. That was a fun yeah. night. And um, but that in his book Jerusalem as well, there's that sense which I think I I got very strongly from your book of of that palimpsest, that overwriting of time. Mm. That as as you walk through these streets, as you go through you sometimes do feel the you know, the weight of, of the ghost. So I had a, a an odd one where well it wasn't odd really, but walking through Cambridge very late at night after a gig, it was a Sunday and it was silent and there was no one there. And I suddenly got a flash of uh thousands of bicycles riding down this street where all the colleges are and it was as if they were all overlaid you know people from 1890 professors from 1920 and you get these wow. um those kind of there's little moments where the imagination suddenly says all of this has happened here yeah. mm -hmm. and all of it has somehow left its mark and i thought that i thought your book and and, and, and jerusalem both have that that sense that the density of the air around us of who mm. stood here before and sometimes who will stand here after. I always get that feeling when I hear horses, when I, in the middle of London, I'm like, oh, and it's, it, I'm like, is that a ghost going by? Or, you know, like, um, well, that, that so happens. Yeah. That's okay. Go on, go on. No, but it's so interesting to think that the sounds, especially in London, the sounds and smells that people would have been used to on a daily basis were completely different 100, 200 years ago. But the whole scape of it was so different. Yeah. I ran out the door, I think it was yesterday or Sunday, hearing horses. Um, and and, and I, was, I was like, whoa, is it a ghost? Or, and then, and of course, it was a proper East London, proper old fashioned funeral with, uh, with the big horses and the huge carriage and everything. It was amazing. Um, yeah, just going by my house. How difficult was it when you were saying about, you know, that some of these, you know, portions of the book would come out fully formed. Mm. And then I, I, I wonder how hard it is that when, when that stops, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of like as a comedian, sometimes you get on a really great improvisation and you, it's just all coming out. But maybe at 18 minutes, it suddenly stops. Mm -hmm. And then finding that next bit. Mm. finding and I know it's a different process obviously, but finding that join is really hard and I wondered in this process of it all flows out and then you go oh now that's stopped and then you have to get to the next place was that mm. difficult at times finding the way of piecing this together 
It was it was quite difficult, yes. Um, but I had two main voices to play with. So we've got the uncertainty of Wolf, the troubled young writer struggling with all the questions. And then I had Mrs. Death, who I, who I hoped would have so many answers. So just sort of bouncing the, those two, I kind of found there was quite a lot to say, quite a lot of questions and answers. Even like silly things like do do the dead go to their own funerals and and playing with 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 questions like that, um, so yeah, so it was a question and answer game quite a lot I think in in this book yeah, yeah, but um but staying motivated I mean this was this was the book that I was writing in between jobs in between gigs whilst I was working on the Good Immigrant and the Livewire album and Pessimism is for Lightweights book. So this was, they all started to feel like work. So this was the thing that I was doing as a treat to write when that no one knew about, that had no deadline. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a book deal. So it was something I was writing for pleasure and for, for something I really wanted to say. And I think that comes across with this one more than, um, because yeah, it was, it was, this was the, the thing I was making other, you know, that what didn't have any pressure on it, that wasn't any, nobody knew about it. It's not like my secret project. Um, but I sometimes think being a writer is like that. You like being a chef in the kitchen. You have something in the freezer, something on the hob, something in the oven, something in the shop window. Um, so now very much Mrs. Death is in the shop window, which feels really weird because it's, it's been a long, long time baking this one. Yeah. Yeah. How did it feel to know that you've turned it out to the world and that it, people can... Terrifying. Terrifying. I've hardly slept. Uh, um, so terrifying. There's so many um, things in there that, that are so provocative and big statements and, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd also just, just, it's kind of, kind of like letting the ghosts out, the genie out of the bottle, or letting the ghosts fly around. Um, I just hope that I was faithful to it and that I didn't betray um, any of that magic, you know, sometimes when you talk about something too much, it kills the magic of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, how do you come to the conclusion that a work like this is ready to go? I didn't let anyone, um, I didn't let anyone fill me with any doubt. So I didn't, I didn't let anyone read it. I talked about it to friends and they basically sort of say, it sounds terrifying and scary. Why do you want to talk about death? <laughs> um, and I sort of played with different ways to work on it. I went down to Whitstable to uh, work with my friend, Peter Coit, the composer, and set some of the chapters and some of the some bits of the book to music so I wasn't even sure where I was going with it or what I wanted to do with it um but just kept building and building the body of work and building the story um and sort of setting some of it to music so I wanted to really inhabit Mrs Death like how she eats this whole thing with the eggs and and how she talks and and how she might sing and her diaries and letters and you know songs and yeah so um yeah so I, I gave in the the finished thing or what I felt was the finished thing so I'd gone a long way through lots of editing um before letting anyone uh, before handing it over to my agent Crystal Mayhe Morgan and she was so confident in it absolutely blew me away I thought I'd have to do um a lot more a lot more work um you already had was... yeah <laughs> I know. the thing you did it all. Hang on, are you going? Are you, will you ever release the music and and release the parts of it that are sort of soundtracked? Hmm, I'm not. Sh I'm not sure what to say about that. Obviously, we've um, 
the um, Idris Elba has the film rights um, thing. That what happens? Oh, not bad. <laughs> so, not bad. Not a bad day. So, so that happens. So that um, so we'll just just see how everything progresses. Um, you know, I just sit, yeah, just be really just letting it grow organically and see what comes next. And yeah, but it does feel at this at this point now the book's been out three weeks there is this sort of like I can't you can't put it back in the bottle you know like ah so I just have to run with it now and just uh, believe in the person that started writing it in 2015 is still me and, and that there was a reason I started or made this if you see what I mean and stand by my own self if you see what I mean <laughs> yeah did you, have you always found that because as, as also as a performing poet that the rhythm of I mean, a, a, a book that we've talked about. Have you read Dorothy Porter's The Monkey's Mask? Have we talked about this before? We've talked, no. about, we've talked about it before, Josie, oh. for sure. <laughs> Sorry, it's, I'm uh, um, Lem say <laughs> and, and uh, Tanita Tikram and others are fans of it as well. And I, it was a book that I just found fascinating. I, I, I read it because I had to make this documentary about a bunch of writers and no one sent me any of the books until the day before. And then I got about 20,000 pages and it was like, well, and it was the smallest book. So that was the main reason I read it. It was, it, it's a detective thriller written entirely in verse. And, wow. the only time, and it is so effective because that leanness of the language means that everything is a thrill or suspense or anxiety. All of those things are, um, and she, she wrote other poetry thriller novels as well. And I was thinking, reading yours as well, what, you know, how conscious are you of, of what you've learned from being a performing poet of language, which is, you know, someone who in, even in this question is demonstrating being overly verbose and quite often tangential halfway through a question. That sense <laughs> of getting the leanness of going, this is what the sentence needs to say. Because I, I notice that with poets sometimes when they their first novels, and well, not just their first novels, that you go, ah, oh, everything is condensed so everything is a sensation mm. well this was a big thing for me there wasn't in the making of this book the one rule is that it has to be short so no overwriting and no over so so much ended up on the cutting room floor um because I, I had a, a a page number or a word count in mind and uh and so lots of throwing away stuff and and whittling it down and whittling it down i thought it would be really cruel of me to make a book with that's all about death be really heavy so i understood it would be heavy in the head and heavy in the heart why make it heavy in the bag as well so <laughs> like, so I, a lot of it was cut back cut back um and and making it as 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 skinny as possible um particularly you know so for example making the um wolf's diaries in almost haikus in really short poetry form little cut was cut back from pages and pages of 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 babble yeah um so that was kind of my one rule yeah to make it skinny because <laughs> that's an i've talked to a few writers recently partly because I'm having an agonising time editing something about different processes. And I'm interested in there are those who, both in fiction and non-fiction, have to keep building up an enormous block of stuff until you have a huge slab. And then you have to go, oh, what's in it? And then there are others where it seems to grow. 
So it, that you know, here's the sentence one, here's sentence two, and and if anything, they're then going, oh my god, I've suddenly got sixty thousand, and the publisher definitely wants ninety thousand, and they keep slowly growing. So, do you have you seen different ways of that that process working for you, or or do you feel do you kind of grow it out, or do you chip it? You know. Yeah, this one was like a tree trunk, and then whittling it down into a shape. It was a, a big chunk. Except, yeah, the first the first example is definitely because it's a big subject and there's so many deaths and so many different cultures and different rituals and different um and I was I I was collecting so many amazing deaths but not really collecting deaths more collecting stories of great courage um stories of people surviving um and uh, as well as 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 um deaths that had gone unnoted or unmourned um and sort of seeing who gets a hashtag who doesn't that kind of thing and um so yeah, so there was a big a big file of stuff that I wanted to get in there. So some of it's just mentioned in passing in one sentence. Um, for example, um, refugees being um, left in a lorry. That's just one line, but what could have been a whole a whole chapter, you know. Um, uh, but and obviously I was writing it in real time, so it was stories that were happening around me as as I was writing it. So Grenfell happened while I was writing this book and and these things were happening in the news around me. So I was obviously influenced um, by what was happening. Um, uh, The the story of Inga, the German hitchhiker, the day, um, the first week that I arrived in Ireland, it was the anniversary of her body being found. So then I'm in the little tiny local library because um, obviously you never take enough books on holiday do, or you're, when you go away, you've never got enough books. So I go in and pot- pottering around in the little local library and I read the local newspaper and it's the anniversary of this uh, this poor girl's body being found in, in the woods very close to the curfew tower in Cushendal where I was writing the last um, chapters of the book. So yeah so it was very uh, it was it, it was like this story just fell in my lap it was it was here and it was there so so yeah just sort of moving with i really i really take a lot of i really will look out for serendipity and coincidences do you i really mm. look for look for some kind of method in the madness or some kind of patterns or you know or numbers or so a lot of this book is that it's filled with things that are coincidences and and accidents and yeah and they just married up yeah like the china rabbit and seeing rabbits everywhere and things like that yeah i think it's like tapping into something isn't it it's deciding Mm. to sort of to connect with things that are in in the ether a bit and then i like the fact that what was it when we interviewed kevin barry he was talking about half belief about how you sort of you're going okay no i'm a rational individual and i'm not necessarily somebody who believes in magic or believes in this that the other but at the same time a little bit enough like and and i feel like it it connects you enough to some kind of magic to be able to i don't know to to get beyond the everyday and make something that is in itself contributing to that no, but I, I think that's an interesting because I think that's, you know, as we mentioned, Alan Moore, you know, is, is quoted on the back of your book and John Higgs as well. And these are conversations we've had with, with, with both those people about there is a way of like the, that story of me seeing the bicycles in Cambridge. I know I didn't see ghosts. I know that it comes. I mean, I think there's a point where you can a bit like Josie, when you were saying about divine inspiration, 
where you can know it is a creation from within. Sure, yeah. But it doesn't I mean, stop. That It doesn't then immediately just make it cold fact. Mm. The possibilities of imagination are, at times, it does feel like, you know, we still don't understand consciousness, so it's still allowed to be magical. Mm. Until those neuroscientists have got to the bottom of it, here, <laughs> here is that, that, that magic place. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think, I think that. I think there's just so so much so much of this this uh, book as well was dreams that I kept having very vivid dreams. Um, for example, Tilly Tuppence was a very very real, very vivid, very scary dream. Um, a character that was fully formed and, and the whole thing so much so that I, I that, you know I was googling Tilly Tuppence and then it, it really is has just been something that that I don't maybe it's some kind of weird DNA memory. As in my dream, I was Tilly Tuppence. It was horrendous. So, um, so yeah. So it's very, very strange um, where some of it came from. Another example is the Red Tower, you know, with all the bodies being put down the well, and that was a very real, very vivid dream. As was my shame that it was my fault that I hadn't saved these these people. Um, again, I looked it up, and there's no such there's there's there is no Red Tower, but it's very real in my head. Um, which is probably why they come off the page so, so um, yeah, so much. But so much of, of the of the characters, I, I lent my family tree to Wolf Williford, to the young writer. There's so much of my family tree is Scottish and Irish and and Jamaican, and so I you know I sort of had I got my DNA tested, and I have my my sort of a, a vague idea of where. How, you know, I've got really old blood. There's really a lot of stories in my blood. So I sort of cherry picked some of those characters and gave them to Wolf for authenticity. So it feels rich and real. Yeah. It's it's such a deep book in terms of what it's taken from you. Like it, you're talking about dreams, like deep subconscious stuff, and then kind of walking and waiting to hear other things come up from your consciousness on top of like you as a conscious writer. Like that's so exciting to think of all those aspects of who you are going into it and then on top of it adding like actual hints of ancestry and things like that mm. and the other thing is that I can hide or not hide behind but I kind of get a kick out of is the book in a way isn't my book it's Wolf writing Mrs Death Mrs Death Mrs Death Mrs Death is very much Wolf's title and it's Wolf making this book and it's Wolf's writing of <laughs> Mrs. Death's conversations and stories. So I kind of feel like there's this other layer there that I can sort of slightly hide behind a little bit. Yeah. Mm. That's it. Talking about the visual nature of it, because it is a very visual book, and that Tilly Tuppence, I mean, even when you mention that, I'm getting a kind of montage in my head of that entire sequence, which is that idea of, is it apophenia? I'm trying to remember. Have you come across this? Again, it was something John no. Higgs mentioned. I think it's oh. apophenia. It's this the about visual imagination and that a surprising number of people have don't see pictures in their head they have no visual imagination wow and and that actually artists some visual artists have apparently this condition i think it's apophenia i would double check trent can probably find out for us um but uh so visual artists who are not seeing the vision in their head beforehand it only exists when it's placed on the canvas or turned into a sculpture and so i was interested in, in terms of your and then on the other side there are people who everything is visual so you're mm -hmm. constantly when you're reading a book you are seeing 
you know mm. all all of those images and and as you said as well you get layers of, when you, when you're dealing with dreams as well the layers of reality and the questioning of 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 that so so would you say you you have are you storyboarding as in 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 your head as these sentences are coming out Ah, it's aphantasia. So you might you may well know about aphantasia. Now, what apophenia is, I can't remember, but I did read about someone with apophenia the other day. It's a nice word. It's, uh, <laughs> but yeah, ap- apophenia. I hope it's a pastry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have two. Yeah. <laughs> Double cream. <laughs> um. So what was the question there, Robin? So do, Sorry. do you have a very, you know, in, in terms of, a visual sense, a sense of as as those words are going on the page, are they a reflection of pictures in in your mind? Yeah, very much so. In I think as well. Sometimes I don't realise I've dreamt something. It takes me ages to realise what's dream and reality. I'm very I dream very vividly. I might dream that my partner's been horrible to me, and then not talk to him for about oh, half yeah. an hour. <laughs> I think that's justified. It, it takes me like... ages. Crimes committed with dreams carry forth to the real world. <laughs> it takes me ages to forgive him. Um, uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I've, I've, I kind of, and a lot of um, a lot of this work was written at four in the morning. So dream, getting up and writing. Um, I started this weird habit when I was writing Springfield Road, but a lot of it was written in that weird milky time when no one's really awake and you're kind of half here, half not here. Because um, um, I think from four in the morning till sort of nine in the morning, no one's going to really need you. So I sort of stole that as my time. Obviously, not when I was coming home at four in the morning from gigs, but because <laughs> <laughs> then it'd be quite, oh man, do I miss coming home at four in the morning from gigs? The way I just said that. <gasps> anyway um yeah so yeah so that 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 a lot of it was written in that kind of watching the sunrise and that dawn light and that kind of magical light and and i hope that that really you can really sort of feel that in the book too that kind of hope that you feel first thing in the morning before you've read the newspapers or seen the twitter or whatever you know that hope that morning it's everything is possible i can build a cathedral feeling you know yeah. Also, it's uh, what's the word people say? Loads a liminal space, isn't it? It's not. It's not one thing. It's not another. It's it's sort of. It, it's a secret space. It, I think writing about death is such an apt. That's such an apt time to be thinking and writing about death. Mm. It's almost you're not quite in the land of the living, and you're not quite asleep. You're sort of somewhere mm. secret and unusual. Yeah, yeah. Which is probably why I made Wolf so kind of in between worlds, in between dreaming and sleeping and sobriety and <laughs> and kind of all a kind of a lovely sort of mix of 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 here and there. You'd have to be to to be friends with Mrs. Death, I think. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. thing about because that immediately made me think of when I was with my mum when she was dying. And over the night and into the dawn it felt as as she was fading. It felt like that was the time to go, but then she lasted for the rest of the day, and then that felt like a very strange time because as I was sitting there with one of my nieces, with classic FM on in the background, which was not a good thing. Um, radio and three, there weren't another difference. No, it didn't matter, right? My mum was not a Radio Three listener. You know, she was <laughs> she was not Benjamin Britten. She was far closer to Hooked on Classics, as you know, the disco versions of Beethoven, <laughs> and um, 
and so and then mm-hmm. that that was a that, so just when you mentioned it just made me think of that strange that there's a time when it feels like this should be and now oh this is all daylight and this mm-hmm. is all and and now mm-hmm. and it felt like a, a, the uncertainty of it was very different to the uncertainty of going through the night if that mm-hmm. makes sense yeah it does it really does yeah i think that i think that this book feels like that i think it feels like the time that i wrote it in the day i mean time yeah time there's a lot about time in the book too yeah hello sorry to disturb the conversation just to say you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles if you'd like to hear the full version then you can support us via patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle tattle that dropped out of our mouth but I want to know about because what we can see is we can see a fantastic bookshelf. Yeah. I can see mm, over to the really? right of you. It starts with the Penguin Modern Classics that came out in the late eighties, early nineties, and then works backwards. If I can tell from the orangeness, obviously, of the spines. Well, what, yeah, <laughs> who, who who are because it's it, it's an interesting. We talked about this last no, it was the year before last, wasn't it? Where I I had a year where it was kind of I didn't have to work on any project. Be I, I was doing a, I was in the middle of a project, so I didn't need to research because I was just doing mm. it. I was on tour. And I just went, I'm only going to read novels by women writers. That's what I'll do, apart from a couple of times where I had to read some Philip K. Dick for a project. And it was really interesting mm-hmm. process of finding out how much I had left out of my reading. Mm. And that yeah. sometimes you have to make a very, con- it seems, rid- and it probably listeners are thinking, what a ridiculous thing to make such a conscious decision. But it felt that I had to just go, no, I have to create a framework. And now it doesn't matter because now I've got all these seeds spread, you know, it's kind of happened. But so that's why I'm interested in in knowing who you would, you know, who who are your favourites. Well, I'm 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 not ashamed to say, but I will admit quite openly, I didn't read many very many women as a young woman. It's kind of strange. Mm, I read all, I read all the men. I thought that's where the party was, and 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 it really seemed like that's where the party was. From your Jack Kerouac to your, you know, and 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 all and then also you know F. Scott Fitzgerald and and George Orwell even even though that's not very party reading but you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that seemed to be where the action was you know and so it took me a long time to sort of educate myself and get in um, and and come back a few steps um, in the in my early thirties I discovered Jean Rhys and I was so thrilled to find that she was in Paris at the same time as Henry Miller at the same time as George Orwell and so here was a woman's point of view of Paris of parties of drinking and amazing amazing Paris life of that time um, but yeah so I, I I think it sort of started with Jean Rhys and then we go into sort of Toni Morrison and then we go into Bell Hooks and. Maya Angelou and and Alice Walker and 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 then my contemporaries. I really love Heidi James. I think The Sound Mirror, her latest book, is amazing. Um, I really enjoyed that. And oh, and Irenison Okoji, um, Nudie Branch. Everything by Irenison Okoji. She's an amazing short story writer. Um, but I've really got into um, audio books in lockdown. Have you? My I have way. started. I never did before, but there's a point when you can't read, 
Or yeah. there's a point where I find I'm in the kitchen and I think I don't want to waste this time and just yeah. listen to another of my playlists. I don't, yeah. So I've yeah. been doing a lot of cooking and baking and making pies and, and doing this, that and the other. And, and so listening to um, audiobooks has been like my new best favourite thing. I just listened to Max Porter's latest, The um, the Death of Francis Bacon. That's amazing. My gosh, he does a really good job. It's really, it's almost like a drama. It's just, he's such a great reader of his work. Um, I also really enjoyed um, Douglas Stewart's Shuggy Baines. Um, oh, we've got him coming up soon. Yeah. I've not oh, read that, so we need to read that. Brilliant. The audio book is brilliant. I sailed through the audio book. No, it's it's a, it's an actor, but it's oh, it's so good. Um, and also, Kit DeWall's supporting cast is a good is an amazing audio book. Oh, talking of Alan Moore, you know when we first started the first lockdown. Um, I suddenly realised to my shock and horror that I actually hadn't managed to read Jerusalem. So I did the Jerusalem audiobook um, in the first lockdown. And that was amazing. So that is, it's huge. It, it takes it's 24 hours or something. Yeah, it is. It, it's, I think it's even longer than that. I, yeah. I'm sure because I've, I've downloaded it. Yeah, um, and I st- I have a slight problem. It's a really, I think it's a really juicy book to because you want a beat, you know. Because I saw people tweeting going, "I'm going to read the everything by Shakespeare," or "I'm going to," and I thought to myself, "Well, I'm going to do Jerusalem." <laughs> <laughs> so because it's, it's such a beautiful, amazing, huge book to really get into and sort of take your mind off uh, lockdown. So it's such an amazing book, or the audio book of Jerusalem. So I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah. See, I had a slight, my slight problem was the guy who does it, who has to do so many voices. I mean, it's remarkable. Not only is he in the studio yes. for six hours or whatever, but, but the one trouble is when he does the Northampton voice, because Alan has such uh, an evocative voice that when I read the book, I could, you know, hear Alan. I mean, there's nothing better. We've talked about this before, but remembering a Viz comic strip with Alan. And then him <laughs> reciting every speech bubble from an episode of George Bestial, where George Bestial is eventually attacked by a swan in a bra or whatever it might be. To have Alan read that, it suddenly becomes a great... Well, Viz is a great work anyway. But but yeah, that was the only thing. I, but it's an incredible achievement, you're right. And it is an amazing book, again, in terms of just how many places it takes you. And it yeah. is so rich. There is a point. I remember having to read it quite quickly. Um, I think it's up here, actually. There should be at least one of the conversations I had with Alan about Jerusalem. And there's bits where you think, I don't want to read any more because it's like I've just had a whole can of glacé cherries because <laughs> every sentence is another beauty. And uh, it's not purely for decorative purposes. It's a beautiful decoration which has an incredible meaning to it as well. <laughs> and But you then just go, no more cherries. <laughs> <laughs> it's so rich. It's the yeah. richest food. <laughs> it really is. Oh, I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to talking about John Higgs earlier. He has this new book on William Blake coming. So I'm excited about wow. that as well. Um, I'm just I taking the... literal physical notes of these things, <laughs> by the way. I read the, the short, he made a short version, William Blake Now. And yeah. I think the next one is William Blake versus the world, I think it is. Uh, and that's that's coming out, I think, maybe next month. So I'm looking, that's going to be my next big Big thing that I'm looking forward to, book-wise, I think. 
Mm. Yeah, he's another author who just really, uh, you know, the first one I read was about the KLF burning a million pounds. Mm. And and he always, I mean, the William Blake, because the William Blake now, which I would highly recommend to anyone listening. And and again, I think you can go back. I think John Higgs and and Josie and me had a conversation about this so long ago. We were in a studio and I think I'd come straight from the William Blake exhibition as well. So long ago, I was walking around an art gallery Um, and uh, it (laughs) was uh, swoon. (laughs) Yeah, it's so odd isn't it where i was talking with someone the other day who said they were watching a tv show and it was it was a drama but then someone went to a comedy club and they went oh, i can't watch this anymore because all i feel is i should like you're saying you know that bit of going to be up at 4 a.m now just means staying up it doesn't <laughs> yeah. mean oh well i want to be up at... <sighs> yeah yeah so to take us away from those lockdown thoughts <laughs> yeah Oh, yeah, yeah that's sort of off with that, John, John Higgs's book. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, William Blake now, I would highly recommend it. It's a small book, which I think his publishers basically went, they're doing a huge exhibition, write a quick book. Mm-hmm. But the, the new William Blake book, I think, is also an entirely separate work. So, so it's worth getting the other one because I think it's a good way in, that way that he reflects on how many different things and different ideas William Blake can embody for people and how he can be to some extent by some William Blake enthusiasts would say misused in his philosophy and, and he talks across art and literature and politics and mm. senses of reality um, and senses of relativity and yeah it's a really it's a great book well also mm. I was just looking at it online and the um, the thing after the title that's also the title that for some reason I can't think of the word is like why he matters now more than ever and I, the thing that I'd wanted to say from the second we're talking about him is he feels so important in this difficult time, like his sensitivity and his sense of kind of just touching the gauze of the edge of this world. You know, it feels really, I don't know, it feels really vital to me. Mm, I like the way you said that, touching the gauze of the edge <laughs> of the world. <laughs> I'm just trying to articulate. Do I know, but I, I was like... totally with you. I was like, Whoa. I felt <laughs> it go through my screen. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that is, uh, um, I, I, you've now because it's been out for three weeks. I presume mm. you've started having people communicate with you, not just friends who've read it, and mm. not just people that you know. But because ah. I would imagine, I'm getting as... some incredible. Sorry to jump in, but I just want to no, say, do. just anyone that hears this, thank you, because I've been getting some incredible personal, private DM messages, emails of people showing me how they've used the last six pages. I don't know if you remember, I, I left the last pages for people to add their own ritual, um, their own dead, their own names. Um, some people have sent, have just sellotaped or glued photographs and whole pages and they made oh. that whole end bit almost like a little mini family album. And oh. I've seen some really beautiful images and, and had some really touching, touching um, messages from people thanking me for adding that to the book um obviously this book was written before covid it was written I, when i was just worried about the normal stuff trump and ecocide <laughs> and and the rise in fascism i didn't just the easy uh, stuff yeah. just, yeah. just the easy stuff, stuff. <laughs> i know i hadn't i hadn't you know i hadn't sort of factored in at the plague but mm. um <laughs> um but yeah so the, these these messages that I've been getting so many different messages and it's really touched people. That's so important. 
I wanted to do that, didn't I? And and to and it, to sort of open up the conversation of death and open up how we talk about mourning, give each other space to mourn, to talk mm. about. It's not about sandwiches. It's not about who writes the poem, the stupid eulogy. It's not about <laughs> you know. It's not about all of that stuff. It's it's much more real than that. Much more about connection and about remembrance. I, and... I think it's why I feel like willing to give so much with with your work like not only obviously do people connect so deeply with it but like it's so wonderful that there is this option for people to connect like to show you how they're connecting with it like that that's mm. I think that will be something that continues you know for, forever like you're always yes. going to be having this special connection with the readers of the book and ah oh, that's wonderful what yeah, I like what, what a thing somebody... to emotion Somebody wrote to me and they said it gives me a lovely feeling that a hundred years from now people will be seeking out the early editions that have all the names in them from, you know, from 2021, from this time. Um, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of a big, big thing to think of or imagine. Yeah, it's I was going to ask about because it does feel that there's a in terms of our attitude to death. There's more and more now that is actually... I, I was thinking of that year, for instance, where three albums that came out, Black Star by Bowie, uh, Leonard Cohen's You Want It Darker, and also Skeleton Tree by Nick Cave. Um, you know, the, these were suddenly here was popular music, all of which was, was addressing death. And then we have books by people like Catherine Mannix and Sue Black. And and it seems there are... And I'm, I'm certainly on, on my shows. There's more and more things which seem to be saying it's really time now to stop because I've, I've spoken before to callum cooper who's a you might have come across i don't know he's, he's a, a kind of specialist in it was one of the things he does is, is kind of studying death and, and the first conversation we had was he said we're still not good at this you know this is this is it, it, in in terms of generally in britain it's it's we're one of the worst countries for mm -hmm. knowing how to deal with loss and as you said for covering it up with sandwiches for everything mm -hmm. is 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 you know someone's placed in a box you don't see them again you have sandwiches you have a jovial yeah. memory and then it hangs around you but inside and not on the outside mm. yeah yeah this kind of the kind of i didn't mean to i didn't mean to be sound mean then when i what when I said about the sort of the poem and the eulogy, that was me sort of taking the Mickey out of myself a little bit. Uh, Mrs. Death does, and she sort of says, "I don't care who writes the poem." This kind of idea of yeah, who gets to speak, um, who doesn't get to speak. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel that we are getting? Oh, sorry, I wasn't picking up on that at, at all. I was I, immediately actually. I thought this book is going to end up being in a lot of stupid eulogies as well, because uh, <laughs> there, there are. It, it has so many things that that does. We said at the beginning, people. Listen, if you've got PRS from eulogies, you'd be laughing. You'd be absolutely laughing. <laughs> we should look about monetizing eulogies. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Why are the Undertaker's getting the whole cut? Just forget that bit of pine. Let's look into these other things as well. But yeah, I just wondered because you explored this so much over the last few years, and you know, you were talking about ideas of rituals and things like that. Whether you do feel that that conversation has been opening up over the last, you know, say ten, 10 years. The conversation about well, the conversation about how we talk about mourning and how we do mean that yeah i think from in my personal life it has in the sense that um i've been hanging around with the green funeral company with rue and claire 
from the Green Funeral Company and having amazing conversations with them and watching their attitude, um, which is a very sort of new attitude to how the funeral ritual is approached and how it's how it's done. And, and I think that 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 must have really influenced and influenced me the way they talk about it. Um, Yeah, I think I think with everything that's going on now, and there must be it must be I'm, must be so strange now, because now we can't even have funerals. Everything's being done by Zoom and and all all being you know. So that's very strange. The mm. bereavement all being carried inside. In a way, it's even more inside, or it's it's small and meaningful gestures that you can just do, like light a candle and think about that person on your own. Um, because we can't meet and gather and it's it's a very strange time and and maybe a time of of change and changing some of those conversations and some of the ways that we've been doing it yeah um that's a that's a big thing that you've put in my brain robin i don't i don't know i don't know the answer properly for that one yeah and yeah. thank you so much for talking to us and like for thank you telling us so much about the book and the process and thank you it's so lovely to see both your faces again thank you for having me oh it's also got the best cover design as well it's yeah, such it's a beautiful brilliant. cover it's so classic isn't it's, it? it's got the whole thing you know i've judged this book by its cover and i, and I judge it <laughs> yeah, you're allowed to when the cover's uh, brilliant but yeah mrs. <laughs> mrs death mrs death is out uh from Canongate now and i think you've probably got the message by now from listening to this uh that you really should read it it's a wonderful book Thank you so much. I hope I hope we'll be back at Northampton Old Labour Club uh, oh. sometime after some gluttony with uh, at Pizza Express and some strange anecdotes about Discordianism. Oh, I would love that. I'll see you there. Thank you, Selena. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. See you later. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. Remember, rate and review, uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Acast and Spotify and all the other places that you might listen to this podcast. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the show and get extended editions of the episode and tips for existence and an uncanny hour and all of the other stuff. Have a great week, stay safe, and we will see you next Thursday. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.